Amen. You guys doing well? Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Uh, grab your Bible. Let's go Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I just want to warn you guys before I even start this morning. Um, what I'm, what I'm going to say today might sound weird to some of our ears. Um, I, I had a meeting with the band, um, I guess it was uh, before the 930 service, and uh, I, I was telling them kind of some of the content and the direction we were heading, and um, e- even the band, and, and here, here's what you guys know about the band, like you got to be super spiritual to be in the band, right? You know what I mean? Like, you got to be like, whoa, right? And so I'm here, I, that was a joke, um, but, and so, you know, I'm talking to the band about what's going on, and, and I saw on their faces, they were kind of like, oh, that's what you're going to talk about. Okay, and, and so I was like, well, now I feel really insecure about what I'm going to preach because if the super holy spiritual band people are like, this could go horribly wrong. And so just want you guys to know before I start, this could go horribly wrong. Uh, so good times, right? Good times. That's the way to start. That's the way to start a sermon. Um, but but my, my hope this morning is to actually highlight and emphasize an aspect of Jesus' work on the cross that is, is frequently minimized, if not unconsidered altogether. Uh, and so as you've probably noticed as you were walking in or, or just looking up at the front now, we've got the communion elements out on the table. And so obviously what we're going to be considering this morning before we take this bread and take this juice as remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, uh, I think what normally comes to mind as we think about a morning like this morning where we consider those things is the forgiveness of sins, right? That's what most immediately comes into our minds as we think about Jesus' death on the cross. And that's good, and that's right, and that's glorious, and that's beautiful, and that's a huge motif that runs through the scriptures regarding what the cross of Christ accomplishes for us. But there's more. There's more. That is not the only accomplishment of Jesus' cross. And so sometimes what we do in the Western world is we only highlight this one facet of Jesus' work. And what we do when we only highlight one facet is we actually minimize Jesus and the glory of what he accomplished for us. And so what we want to do is not say it's less than the forgiveness of sins. We want to say rather there's more than the forgiveness of sins in view, that Jesus is actually doing more than that. And as we come to the table this morning, I want us to to come having celebrated a more fully orbed understanding of exactly what it was he accomplished for us as he goes to the cross on our behalf. And so we'll start in Genesis chapter 1, and we'll kind of move out from there to get a biblical framework for what it is Jesus is doing as he goes to the cross. And so I want to tell you the story briefly of our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? Um, And and so Adam and Eve, uh, we meet in Genesis chapter 1, around verse 26. Um, But I actually want to point out one thing before we get there, uh, not by way of reading, um, but just by way of recall, because probably you've read the Genesis account before. And and so what I want you to notice is as you read Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 1-25, you'll see that God is creating in what we could call um, binaries, right? Um, He's he's making complementary parts that come together. Have you noticed it? It says that God created the heavens and the earth, right? That's, That's a binary. Heavens and earth, two pairs that come together and work in a complementary fashion. You guys see that? Uh, it's then, it then says that we have light and darkness. Again, that's another binary. 
that it's two things that come together and, and work well with one another. Then we see that he creates the sea and the dry land. That's another contrast, another binary that comes together in a way that's complementary. You guys see the pattern? You guys see the flow? Right? And, and so that complementarity, these binaries, find their fullest expression as we then come to the creation of, what am I about to say? Man and woman, right? That, that this is, is God's hallmark of complementarity, that he's creating these, these two parts that come together and work well with one another. Uh, and we see that the fullness of that theme is expressed in the creation of the first man and the first woman. And so we've got binaries, 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 and then uh, the fullness of that in Adam and Eve. And it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that this, that this man and this woman, the, these first two parents of ours, get their, their announcement or their, why would God create a purpose? Right? Why did God do it? Why would God create sentient beings with cognition, with emotion, with the ability to reflect his image in the world? Like, why do it? And that's a fair question, isn't it? Because that's a lot of hassle. Right? Like, that's a lot of hassle. It's a lot easier to just kind of have like a sun, a moon, stars, some animals, right? But you throw cognition into the mix. You throw sentience in the mix. How about this one? You throw will into the mix, all of a sudden you've got a much more complicated thing than you would have otherwise been working with, right? And, and so it begs the question, why? Like, why would you do that? And, and God says exactly why in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us, that being a reference to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I, w I was once uh, talking to uh, a guy when I worked at American Eagle, and um, I, I was talking about this verse, and I quoted it. And he was, he was a pastor's kid, so I thought that I could freely quote the Bible. And um, I said, well, you know, when God says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, he said, don't, don't you mean let me make man in my image? And uh, anyway, I was like, I thought you were a pastor's kid. You're a bad pastor's kid. Most, most are. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. So uh, if, you, if you're scratching your head, if you're new to church, if this whole thing's kind of weird for you, I don't have time to explain the Trinity right now. And let's be honest, I couldn't anyway if I wanted to. Um, but this is a reference. If you're wondering why, why is that plural, it's because God exists as one essence in three persons, that being Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And everybody in the room is like, you should have just left that alone. Now it's confusing. All right. Let me finish the verse. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, there is the purpose of man leaping from this page into our perceptivity. But unfortunately, we have a tendency to miss it. So I'm going, to read, I'm going to read it again and see if something about the purpose of humanity, the design for humanity, the intent for humanity leaps out at you as I read this again. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. I'm trying to give you hints via emphasis. Okay. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Did anybody pick up what I'm putting down? There's that word in there, dominion, right? It, it says that we were created that we might have dominion over the rest of the created order. Now, dominion, you may have a translation that says that we should subdue it. Um, so I think maybe King James says that. Um, some others actually just outright say that, that they should have rulership over and that it talks about the created order. Um, but whether, like, regardless of what translation you have, dominion, subdue, uh, whatever it is, is this not the language of ruling? Is this not the language of oversight, of management, of status, of position? I mean, is it not? Like, this is, this is God saying that his intent for humanity is that we rule over, have dominion over, have authority over the rest of the created order. Now, that's, that's odd, right? Like, you don't, like, we don't generally wake up in the morning and read our devotions and walk away from our devotions thinking, yes, I feel kingly. <laughs> I'm just feeling, I'm feeling like a ruler this morning. I'm feeling a sense of authority over all that is, right? Like, you probably, now, some of you actually are arrogant enough that you, that you do do that, and it causes problems, Right? Maybe that's why we've muted that verse in the modern expression, right? Right. We've already been told enough that we're special snowflakes who should be well-treated, right? And so we're like, maybe let's leave that off, okay? We've already got that problem, okay? Right? But, but this is what Genesis 1.26 is saying. It's saying that God designed us intending that we have dominion over creation, now, the idea there is that we would cultivate it, that we would steward it, that we would use it for our good and for the flourishing of the societies that we create. That's the idea behind it. But we have dominion, rulership, authority over. That's the intention. That's the design. But if you're familiar with the Genesis account, then you know that it wasn't far into the story that our first parents abdicated their responsibility abdicated, in fact, their privilege to rule over creation, and instead, what do we see? We actually find that they are ruled. Do you guys, do you guys know what I'm referring to? Because here's what happens. A serpent creeps into the garden. Now, what do we know about the serpent? Is the serpent part of the created order? Okay. What are Adam and Eve supposed to be exercising over the serpent who's part of the created order? Dominion, right? Authority. But what happens? Serpent comes in, starts spitting some game. That's a modern way of saying he starts to say things to them that perhaps they shouldn't listen to, okay? Right? And the serpent, over which they are supposed to have authority, actually ends up ruling over them, leading them, setting the direction for them. Is that not a reversal of what God said was supposed to happen in Genesis 1.26? Of course it is. The serpent over whom they had authority actually ends up taking authority over them and leading them in a direction that leads to an abysmal failure such that sin enters into the world. This reversal of roles is not working well. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the same way that Adam and Eve found themselves ruled by creation rather than ruling creation is something that we're still feeling and experiencing today. 
And so hang with me. I know everybody's already like, this is weird. This is super weird, right? But, but here's some ways that I would say that you are mastered by, ruled by, controlled by creation rather than you having an, a position of authority over creation. Um, let's take, for example, food. Can we all agree that food is a part of the created order? Right? Food falls. So can we agree that in Genesis 126, when it says we're supposed to have dominion over the creative order, that food falls into that category? Everybody with me so far? I know how many of you could admit that some, for some of us, particularly in American society, food has a, a power over us, has an authority. <laughs> I don't know who said that, but I love you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amen is right. Especially if you grew up in the Baptist church, man. Y'all like, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I said to that food, I would like for you to lord over me, please. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? Now, now, the way that food lords over us can be different depending on, on, on how that manifests itself in us. For some of us, Food's control over us manifests itself in gluttony, right? That being that we will eat it to our detriment despite the fact that we know it's bad for us, right? I mean, can we be honest? And then we even have the audacity to complain about what we look like in our clothes, right? So you're saying, I don't like how this makes me look, I don't like how this makes me feel, and yet I need more of it. What is that? That's that it has a power over you. That which you're supposed to be ruling over and taking dominion over has actually taken control of you. You see what I'm saying? And then there are others of us, though. It's a different expression. Some of us are so consumed with how we look and, and how, how we want uh, ourselves to look in skinny jeans and how we want to be able to stay current and, and look awesome and be cool that we have a different obsession with food. And that's that we are obsessed with the abstinence from it, right? But is that not still power and control? That every time I come to a meal, I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. Is that 4,000 calories or, oh, is that? Because I, I can't exceed more than 4,000 calories during the day because if I do, then I might. I, well, in the day, like the whole day, Sandy. I'm not talking about one meal. That'd be crazy. That'd be crazy. Yeah. But when you got a metabolism like mine, you got to have 4,000 throughout the whole day. You know what I'm saying? Okay? Right? And so, so like, I'm, I'm counting calories. I'm adding up carbohydrates. What is that? That's which we were supposed to have authority over. It's taking control of you. Like, you can't even sit down at a meal and enjoy it because now you're afraid that it's going to do something to you that you don't want it to do. It's got authority over you rather than you taking authority over it. Does that, you feel that with me? Can you go there with me mentally? Yeah. And so that which we were supposed to have authority over has taken authority over us. Let me give another broad category where we see this happen. Um, this is going to be awkward sex. Who was at the elephant in the room that Pastor Nathan led where we talked about sexuality? Anybody? Yeah. Um, he threw some incredibly disconcerting stats up on the screen. And one of them was about pornography consumption. Now, you cannot look at the state of particularly men in our culture and say that sex does not have a power over us. In fact, something that was really interesting to me in Pastor Nathan's research was the fact that upwards of 50% of pornography consumption happens between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. 
You can't make it through eight hours of work without searching that on the internet. I'm thinking something has power over you. Are you with me? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? That that which we were supposed to be stewarding and managing and having control over, namely sex, that which we were supposed to be determining its usage such that it worked for our good and for God's glory and for the flourishing of society has now become a perverted thing that I can't even go eight hours without looking at on the internet. I can't even get through a productive work day without pausing for it. That which I was supposed to have mastery over now has mastery over me. And that can express itself in all kinds of other ways in terms of sex. I'm just, I don't have the time. And so... What happened to Adam and Eve happens to you and I every day, that rather than us having authority over management of, there's something else that's taking possession of us. I'll do one last broad category to drill the point down, products, that being material goods, right? Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with material goods. In fact, the things that we have built with our hands, using our minds, using our science, using all of these different things, that's good. Because that's actually, in part, obedience to Genesis 1.26, right? Because God said, I want you to have management and oversight of what I have made. He's saying, subdue it, cultivate it, use it, build from it. That's good, that's right. And so we've made products, and we've built businesses, and we have systems of government. That's obedience to Genesis 1.26. But here's what's happened with the products that we've made using the raw materials of God's world. Rather than us lording over them, they lord over us now, don't they? And the way that I would bear that out is simply another statistic. They're super helpful. Most Americans, on average, have $15,000 of credit card debt. $15,000 of credit card debt. What is that? That's the fact that products have control over you. That you've gotten to the point where despite the fact that you know you need to pay this bill, despite the fact that you know you cannot afford that, I've got to have I'll find a way to pay for it later. What is that? Rather than you having control of it, it has taken control of you. And so in all of these ways, in all of these categories, and we could go on and on and on and on and on and demonstrating the truthfulness of this, that which we were supposed to have control over has taken control of us. Is that, is that point well made? Because I can do more categories if you need me to. Okay, all right, so we get it, we get it. And so what I want to say to you this morning is that Jesus' work on the cross doesn't just have the forgiveness of sins in view. It also has our reinstatement to Genesis 1.26 in view. And I'll, I'll, I'll pin that down in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. I'll give you a second to turn there or use your device to get there, however you're going to do it. Colossians chapter 2. I'll read verses 13 through 15. Here's what it says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now that's the part that we're familiar with. Right, that's the, that's the redemptive narrative that is familiar to us, right? That Jesus goes to the cross that we might be forgiven of sin. 
because God had a law. He has a standard. We've fallen short of that standard. And just like when any law in any civilization is broken, there are consequences for law-breaking, are there not? And so we understand that. We track with that. Our modern minds can go there that the law had been transgressed, and so there was a penalty that had to be paid. And this text is saying beautifully, magnificently, graciously that Jesus stepped in and took that penalty for us. That's those first two verses. But then verse 15, things get wonky. Okay? Here it is. He, that being God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, him being Jesus. Let me read that again. This is not the normal redemptive theology that works. Them to open shame by triumphing, armed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Now, that's just weird sounding, isn't it? It's like, I was tracking with you when you were talking about the forgiveness of sins. But now you're talking about rulers and authorities. I'm trying to figure out which ones. Like, are we talking, are we talking earthly here? Are we talking otherworldly here? Like, what's going on? I'm starting to get weirded out, okay? Right? We're incredibly left-brained in our society, right? And so we, we're post-enlightenment people. And so we think, like, give me, like, I can taste it. I can touch it. It's empirical, right? But I want to submit to you that, that what he's talking about here in terms of rulers and authorities, he's not talking about worldly governments here rather what he's talking about here this is going to sound super off the wall to some he's talking about sin satan and demons that, that's what he's talking about when it says that he's disarming rulers and authorities he's talking about sin satan and demons now again that that sounds odd because it's like well why would i need like, why would he need to disarm them? Like, what's going on? And, and again, we've got to be thinking, the Bible is one coherent story from Genesis to Revelation. So how does this fit together with the ground that we've covered so far? Well, if God's intent for humanity was that we be having dominion over rulership, over authority, over the created order... But what happened in Genesis 3 is we abdicated that authority. We gave it away. There's a power vacuum. Are you with me? We did not sit in the seat of dominion. Rather, we chose to have food lord over us, to have sex lord over us, to have products lord over us. Well, there's a power vacuum, isn't there? Who filled it? Who took our place? Satan and his demons. This is borne out all through the New Testament. We just don't think about it very frequently. And so this is saying that what Jesus is doing in part on the cross is he's removing the authority of sin, Satan, and demons such that that throne will again be vacant so that who can sit back in it? You and I. You and I. Genesis 1.26. Who was intended to have dominion over creation? We were. But we abdicated our position, and Satan said, I'll happily sit in place. I'll happily take the authority that God was vesting in humanity. And so part of what's going on on the cross is Jesus is disarming. He's removing them from that seat of authority that he might reinstate you 
that he might reinstate me, that we might no longer be slaves. You guys have heard that narrative that also runs through the scriptures, right? And in fact, I'd say that there's a much larger Exodus narrative at play through the scriptures than we realize. You guys know about the Exodus from the Old Testament, right? That God's people were enslaved um, in Egypt and they needed to be set free, right? Because what was God's actual intent for Israel, his, his, his people? It was that they be leading, right? That they were to be the people on the earth that were leading other people to see who God was and to worship God and to glorify God. But what happened? Instead of them leading people, did they not end up enslaved by people? Right? Same narrative, isn't it? Same narrative. And so what this is saying, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, is that just like God's people Israel went from a place of leadership to a place of slavery, such has happened to you and I. That those things over which we were supposed to rule, we've actually become ruled by. And Jesus is in the business of setting free. That there's an exodus for you and there's an exodus for me. That those sins that have mastery over you, those sins that have control over you. And here, that's why it shouldn't seem weird to us. This shouldn't be odd language. When we talk about like these uh, invisible powers and authorities, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Again, we're practical, pragmatic, rational, post-enlightenment, scientific people. Don't tell me, Wes, about these invisible powers and authorities and some horned devil that has invisible demons and makes me do things I shouldn't want to do and that kind of thing. Like, that sounds anti-intellectual. That sounds provincial and parochial. I use large words when I'm saying those kinds of things because I want you to know that I'm not that. Okay? Right? But, but doesn't that idea sound kind of archaic? Like, okay, we don't really need help in that department. There's no such thing as invisible demons and devils that come and do things to us. But here's what I want to submit to you. While we don't generally go here rationally, every single one of us lives there existentially. Because how many times are you dead set on doing the right thing and it doesn't play out that way? How many times have you said it in your heart and mind, I will be faithful to God, I will obey the scriptures, I will not talk to my wife like that, I will not fly off the handle, I will not go to that website, and here you are again. What is that? What is that? Something has power over you, and you've never seen it, and you've never tasted it, and you've never touched it, and yet it's been ruining your life for years. And Jesus says, I came, I came that you might no longer be slaves. I came that you might again have control. In fact, one, ways, one of the ways that the New Testament says this is that Jesus came to give us the power to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. And you felt the fact that sometimes you're powerless to do that, haven't you? What is that? It's these rulers and authorities that Paul's alluding to in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus says, they're disarmed. They don't own you anymore. You can say no. You can say no. And it's interesting. There's another text that I'd point you to. Just write this down as time is short, and I'll read it for you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 says this. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. There's, there's that word again, isn't it? There's that idea. We will also reign 
with him. In fact, this is the way that the book of Revelation closes, that there is a new heaven, there's a new earth, and what does it say the faithful followers of Jesus will be doing? It says we'll be ruling and reigning with Jesus. Now, this sounds odd to us, but it's not at all if we're really familiar with the Genesis narrative. Because what did Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 say we were created to do? To have dominion. That rather than be ruling over, being ruled over, we were to rule. And so Jesus is saying, I'm reinstating you such that you're no longer slaves to that which I actually put you over. That's the idea. Now, the reason I bring that out, the reason I highlight that, underscore that, teach that this morning is because as we come this morning and we eat this bread and we drink this juice, I want you to know that there's a proclamation there that's larger than forgiveness of sins. Jesus is not just trying to forgive you of sin and then leave you as a slave to sin. That's not his goal. It's not just, hey, now you can continue to have your relationships jacked up by sin, and you can continue to have your finances in disarray because products rule over you, and you can continue to have strife and discontentment in your relationship with your wife because sex controls you, and that's still around. He says, not only am I forgiving you of it, I'm freeing you from the control that those things once had, such that you can, John 9, 9, have abundant life. Are you with me? Are the pieces coming together such that... Jesus did not do less than forgive us of sin. I'm saying he came to do more. He didn't just forgive you of its penalty. He wants to free you from its power.